Coming up is a podcast brought to you by the dedicated and diverse volunteers at 3CR. Just a quick message before you get there. For the month of June, we're asking listeners to donate to the station to help keep us going. In 2023, we're asking our community to stay tuned, stay radical. We rely on the generous donations of the community to survive. Go to 3cr.org.au slash donate and show your support for community-owned and community-run media. Thanks for your support and happy listening. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Pasaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we're joined by Ali Broland, who is a journalist with Mother Jones covering disinformation. Thanks for joining us, Ali. Thank you so much for having me. It's cool to be here. I guess just to begin with, you're on this disinformation beat. How did you find yourself upon it? Yeah, I started, I was covering tech policy and literally writing about cable box policy at the FCC, the Hill. But my mandate was to cover the website, thehill.com. But my mandate was to cover kind of anything at the nexus of tech and politics. And then as 2016 got closer, that got way more interesting and dynamic. FCC policy is very important in the United States, but I was more interested in other sort of countervailing things or forces that were going on. And then I guess this is around the time that people started to find out about Russian disinformation. And so my initial foray into the beat was just looking at what the internet research agency was doing on Facebook and how they were trying to get Americans to do different things. Obviously, that became an extremely contentious area. Like Its impact has been debated. But my work, I guess, didn't go as much into the culpability or holistic views of the IRA so much as it just did. They did X and then Americans did X in response. And then through covering that, I started focusing on this stuff more. And there's, I guess, kind of been this discussion within disinformation right now about, I guess there's critics of the space increasingly and people, Joe Bernstein wrote a really good piece in Harper's that kind of sort of tries to do a nuanced sort of attack on the disinformation space. And it was an argument that I was kind of sympathetic towards because I think that trying to litigate out epistemic like reality or truths is sort of a weird game to play. So it requires a lot of I guess, care and precision, which a lot of people on the beat do try their best to do. But I sort of felt that a while ago and so tried to focus my beat on things that were not, I guess, more objective, but maybe closer to things that were not me, didn't involve me as much me trying to sort of like come up with truths about reality, but me interrogating the forces of information that were probably producing harm. So I just did a feature on Kiwi Farms, this transphobic internet community. Just unless you are a transphobe, it's an objectively bad website, right? And then I focus on Nick Fuentes, who is, I guess, having his own interesting perspective or his own interesting slash in some ways, in many ways, bad impacts on the world. So I tried to find things that were more at the intersection of internet politics than just disinformation, which I, I still have a hard time even understanding what that is. You've just written a large feature on Nick Fuentes for Mother Jones. It came from the basement. For our listeners who might not be familiar, could you tell us a little bit about who Nick Fuentes is and sort of where he's come from? Yeah, he's a very cool, very normal guy. If you, if you know anything about Nick, he's not cool or normal. He, <clears throat> he really likes Kanye West and he, Nick Martin once reported that he dressed up in a full Kanye West outfit from the concert with the full mask. 
which I think is a good example of how just not normal of a person he is. But yeah, he's this Zoomer. I think he's what, 23, 24? Do you guys know? Yeah, yeah I think 24. Okay, he's 24 now. Yeah, he lives in suburban Chicago. I think he used to live in LaGrange. I forget where he moved to. And he's built this little following of people who are around his age. They're this Zoomer insurgency that is trying to pull the right, the American right-wing Republican Party to the right. He sort of fashions himself as this next iteration of Pat Buchanan, kind of in the way that Pat Buchanan was, I guess this isn't who he is anymore, but he used to be more interested in hiding his politics. He tries to follow this paleoconservative tradition that abuts with the white power movement in the United States. Nick is more explicitly pro-white power than maybe some of his predecessors in that movement were. He's trying to bend the Republican Party towards that. Um, he's kind of undisciplined and sloppy, so he has trouble with that, but he's still a force to be reckoned with and augurs stress things regardless he seems a strange choice to be leading such a movement it seems if you know if he had his druthers and you know they were swept to power that his ticket would be pretty quickly punched he's not exactly the you know the Aryan ubermensch <laughs> no but that's kind of he's like none of them are right i mean obviously famously hitler had his own by his own logic he had his own deficiencies but i guess the guys that are often into that this almost sounds hack, but because it's such a reductive, obvious point. But I don't know the guys with the straw jaw jawlines who are you know prototypically, I guess, quote unquote, have good genes. If you accept that kind of thing, are generally not hanging around the white power movement. It is often guys who are cast outs who are not doing. Maybe they're not doing that poorly in a number of ways, but they're not you know winners. That's how they end up with these things. I kind of have a. This is very unsubstantiated, but I kind of wonder if Nick Fuentes' descent into this was the result of him coming from a very privileged background and then not being able to get into a really prestigious university and having to go to a place, Boston University, which is a very good school, but is often derided. And I wonder if these kinds of things added up in him and created the sense of deficiency that led him down these kinds of paths. I don't know. I, I spent a lot of time reporting on him, but I didn't get insight that deeply into his head. I mean... I guess this would all be fine if he was just in the basement. But as you know, it, it came from the basement. He's been, you know, dining with Trump. He's had people, Marjorie Taylor Greene, appearing at his conferences. What's the impact that he's had on the Republican Party? It's a mixed bag. It's interesting because he, and he gets criticized for this too, admittedly by people with interest. The, the sort of defectors within his movement have criticized him for becoming too radioactive to touch, but he has kind of repeatedly managed to weather it and rise back up from creating his own mess. But he seems to sort of be dragging people to the right and helping encourage. He's not doing this. He's not culpable solely for this at all, but he is helping this sort of rightward drift of the sort of more extremist wing of the party becoming more mainstream. And he does... By going so far to the right, he almost creates cover for people like Marjorie Taylor Greene who can distance themselves from him and say, I'm not this person, even denounce him after speaking at one of his events, even though Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, still functionally has the same politics that she did when she spoke at these events. So he gives a way out for these people. The other thing too is this is, there is sort of chatter. It's, I don't, I haven't really seen it clearly reported, but there is sort of chatter and it's sort of roughly assumed that People, I guess, young staffers often in positions of power in conservative institutions sort of do follow Nick and are aware of his work and sort of, I don't want to say they see it as a lodestar, but they see it as something interesting that is worth engaging with that they can potentially take tips from is sort of my rough sense that I, I don't have confirmed. Otherwise, I would have written that post up or that story, but that's sort of something that gets talked about. And like those people don't have power now. 
But I mean, they kind of do. They are in the ear of people who are in positions of power, and eventually they will come to take these positions of power as well as they rise up the ranks of the conservative conservative institutions. Nick was present in some fashion at the Charlottesville rally in 2017, and it seems many of the more prominent figures who were around at that time have fallen by the wayside. Nick has persisted and has some degree of popularity. Did the events of January 6 affect him? And do you think he has, is he a long distance runner as far as this thing is concerned? Yeah, he definitely has managed to like figure out how to keep going amid a number of difficulties. I want to, I know that he gets funding from somewhere. I haven't exactly figured out his funding sources yet, but he does still seem to be getting the money he needs to keep going. Although it's a very dynamic space. I feel every time I check in, things have shifted. In the time that I did the story, the span that that story covers, I, start, I went to one of his rallies in 2000, I want to say 21 or something like that. And then by the time the story comes out, I want to say, and just look at the date. Yeah, this year, you know, two years later, people that were with him at that rally who were like Jaden McNeil, who was his right hand man, have since defected. He's lost large amounts of people with him. It's it sort of shifted, but he's still figured out how to go even while he's sort of hemorrhaging people. I can't, I don't know. I think it still remains to be seen. He could very easily fizzle out and lose his momentum. He has become so, so toxic and is seen as a sort of poison pill of a person to associate with. But then at the same time, like in 2017, Milo was too. People thought Milo Yiannopoulos was a pedophile sympathizer, but now this is unconfirmed, but there was posts and claims from Nick Fuentes that he ghost wrote Marjorie Taylor Greene's forthcoming book, which is also unconfirmed. And even if he didn't, she confirmed that he was a, some sort of intern in her office. So people are willing to associate with Milo. Nick can conceivably come back from these kinds of things, most likely. It's just a matter of if he can become a better manager and stop creating such a toxic work environment that people get frustrated and want to depart from him. Uh, so it's it's possible that he keeps going. The other thing too is that he's sort of created this avenue of this brand. He's created this rough model that maybe someone who's more savvy could potentially latch onto. Someone who's more disciplined that doesn't have his shortcomings as a manager, as someone with a bunch of weird positions and like tendencies that are off-putting to people on the right could come along and run with this. And even if they don't, there's sort of a rightward drift that's happening anyway that he's only one part of. So yeah, with all of that together, I don't know, but I, I don't know. The whole holistic recipe or, or situation is not very good. In historical terms, is it your feeling that this current crop of very cool and normal people is a departure as far as the Republican Party is concerned? Or is this, if we, if we were to look back through the 20th century, would we find similar figures associated with the Republicans? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with the father. I think it's a Coughlin or is it Coughlin? I forget how to pronounce it out loud. You, you just like, read these things and you don't talk to people about them because my friends don't talk about these things. And then you don't know how to pronounce them. But anyway, there's people like that who did have a tremendous sort of sway and influence on conservatism in pre-mid-century and mid-century America. Tucker Carlson is obviously another example of someone who has slightly more measured politics than Nick Fuentes, but was obviously adored by all sorts of people like around Nick who had very similar politics because they saw him as someone who was mainstreaming what they believed in. The John Birch Society has a different political framework than Nick and was more analogous to if you had to compare it to something it more neatly tracks with QAnon, even though it doesn't neatly track with that. But there are these like, historical moments of these fringe movements gaining power and coming closer to power. So I don't, I don't know if this is, you know, worse than other moments. We, you know, at a certain point, the United States literally did a genocide on Native Americans and there was a slavery and those things were driven by a number of factions within, I guess, what was the establishment politics at the time. 
But compared to, I guess, the last 50 years, the trajectory doesn't feel it is worse, but it feels the potential for it to get worse is something that is on the table. Ali, you also recently wrote an article for Mother Jones about Kiwi Farms, the website that wants you to kill yourself and won't die. Could you tell us a little bit about Kiwi Farms and perhaps how it relates to the anti-trans tsunami that is rolling across the Republican Party? Yeah. So... An easy way to kind of understand, it's not actually easy, but a way to understand sort of, I guess, Kiwi Farms to go back to Gamergate. Difficult to describe what Gamergate is, but it's kind of best understood as this internet genesis of this internet harassment campaign against women and against, I guess, SJW politics as as they described it, as these gamers described it. And you don't need to understand the gaming parts of it. What you just need to know is that it was kind of one of the first moments where people online mobilized together to try to get people fired, to try to harass them, to try to stalk them, to try to make their actual lives, even if they logged off their computers, very terrible. What people kind of don't know and what I didn't realize until I was deeply reporting the story and researching it was that Kiwi Farms slightly predates this and was also moved through this and sort of even set the parameters for this kind of very early, we're going to use the internet as a weapon to hurt people. It's a forum, kind of like 4chan. It's its its own thing, but it was a place for these people to kind of gather uh, and talk about different things, but also organize these very aggressive harassment campaigns. And so flash forward to now, and I guess again about that, you know, 10 to 15 year span of time, Kiwi Farms just started to build a list of people that it would relentlessly go after. And it built out a set of tactics and it got really good. Its members are very good amateur OSINT analysts, open source investigations. They're really good at taking just techniques that reporters would use and using this just on random people who had social media profiles who were not famous. In a lot of cases, Kiwi Farms described these people as cringe, but they the most of their targets were just trans people. They targeted people they hated, which were often trans people, sometimes trans people of color, and they would just viciously go after them for no real reason. They thought themselves to be vigilantes. They, they tried to justify to themselves that they were going after people who were causing harm in the world. Sometimes people like who were victims or targets of Kiwi Farms were doing things that were maybe less good, but not things for a website to sort of try to ruin your life over. And even if they were, their targets were doing bad things. It's like something that we have law enforcement to try to adjudicate these things. We have a court system. And so Kiwi Farms will take into its own hands and just try to make people the majority of cases who didn't deserve it just to try to make their lives absolutely miserable. And it sort of came to a head when in several instances, it viciously harassed people so hard to the point that several people ended up taking their own lives in the midst of severe Kiwi Farms harassment. And then it sort of came to this other, I guess, climactic moment again, when they went after this Twitch streamer, K-Falls, who was a person who actually had the means and the sort of I guess, ability to fight back against them. Twitch streamers, if you don't follow it, it's kind of hard to understand, but they have some of the most durable fan bases and the sort of most resilient parasocial relationships with their fans that I've ever come across. Separately, I've reported on them. And so I don't think Kiwi Farms accounted for how much someone would rally around a Twitch streamer that they were a fan of. And K-Falls leveraged that to try to launch this campaign to get it shut down. In some case, some ways, K-Falls was successful in that one of the things that was keeping Kiwi Farms online is this web services company who ended up dropping Kiwi Farms. But Kiwi Farms has proven to be kind of resilient and figured out ways to try to flicker on and off by using alternative smaller, I guess, hosting sources to stay online until varying degrees of success. I think they're maybe still, let me check if they're still online right now. 
They, they are still online because I just read the uh, Nick Fuentes Catboy Cami date transcript on there before this. Interview. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's another thing about Nick that is, is he's had, when I reported on both of them, I think the Kiwi Farms people were kind of initially irritated at me. And then I think they were probably still irritated, but it was a weird collision of worlds for them for me to also report on Nick Fuentes. Yeah, they still are up now, but they do have dossiers of people like Fuentes who had this weird hangout with this cat boy, which seems to go against Nick's extremely regressive politics on, on matters of gender and sexuality. But yeah, it was a very long-winded answer about what Kiwi Farms is because it's a very long-winded, windy, weird thing. Are there any Republican figures who've endorsed Kiwi Farms or made comment about it? No, the only person, I guess, that's, I think, really publicly talked about it's no one wants to deal with it. It's so, they're seen as so toxic that people at major, Ben Collins is a reporter at NBC. NBC is, is very high profile. He was discouraged from writing about them for a very long time because it was seen as such a dangerous thing. Marjorie Taylor Greene ended up calling out Kiwi Farms because she might or might not have been swatted, which... In the United States, our heavily armed police get to do raids on people's homes if they believe that they're doing some sort of extreme felony where they, they bust in with guns and flashbang grenades. And so swatting is a technique that is popularized on the internet. It was employed by Kiwi Farms and other just, I guess, uh, messed up forums. I think 4chan probably used it at certain points where you find someone's address, you call up their local police, you say, hey this person has bodies at their home or this person is running a meth lab or something like that. And then the police will storm their property. And in some cases, because the police are very trigger happy, sometimes kill a person. Often if there's a dog on the property, police, if put in a situation like that, will just, as a, I don't know if it's a matter of formal protocol, but it's understood that they'll often kill dogs. So if you have a dog, your dog might die. You also might die. If you don't, you'll just have lived through a very traumatic experience. So yeah, Kiwi Farms used that as a tool. So I think someone swatted Marjorie Taylor Greene and then she was, I don't know what Kiwi Farms is, but this is a bad website if they did this to me. It's unclear if the person actually was from Kiwi Farms or not. It's fully possible that they are. It seemed very confusing to me. I couldn't parse that. One reason I ask is because a couple of years ago, there was a, a candidate for the Liberal Party, which is the, I guess, rough equivalent of the Republican Party in Australia, who endorsed Kiwi Farms as being a valuable oh, wow. source of information. And this person was a somewhat notorious transphobe who's made a, okay. a career out of promoting those sorts of politics. So, and also, a, a, I think, a boomer. So I'm not sure if it was the case that they were fully familiar with what Kiwi Farms was about, but nonetheless, they were prepared to publicly endorse it. I wonder how it came on their radar. I don't know how much the news crosses over, but it was a, a big thing in New Zealand for a second because of the Christchurch shooter. Yeah, I believe the New Zealand authorities barred access to the site. That was one of the results of the, the massacre. Yeah. Ali, you've also written recently in The New Republic about the neo-Nazi resurgence in Germany. In Australia, across a number of different jurisdictions, there's currently a swastika ban legislation, which has been either introduced or is about to be introduced. Germany has some of the harshest anti-swastika laws in the world, so I'm a little bit confused about where this neo-Nazi resurgence is coming from. How could they possibly be resurging without swastikas? Yeah, it, it turns out that there are other ways, I guess, you can express Nazi sympathies without swastikas. I think what? our Nazis in the United States don't have them either. I don't think the base is rolling around with them, but I could totally be wrong. I bet they have them indoors. 
Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. The resurgence there is really interesting. What I set out to do with that story was it has been covered and I was certainly not the first person to cover, I guess, the resurgence at all. But what I was curious about and what I hadn't seen, I'm sure this exists in the German press, but in the German coverage of it in the English press, I had a hard time understanding what the actual impacts were for people of color in Germany. I came across one New York Times story in 2018 that was just accidentally covering this because it was asking German people about their relate. It was asking people who are transplants about their relationship with Germanness because in the United States, you come here and people see you as an American very quickly for the most part. My mom is from Iran, right? But people, Ali, you're born in Florida, you're American. And in Germany, I guess it's very much not the case. You can be Turkish descent, but born in Germany. And you're kind of, a lot of people don't see you as German. And so I saw that in the article and there was all of this talk about people dealing with weird racism that I've never really seen in the English press. And so I wanted to understand the interplay between those two things. And so I went, I was on a fellowship in Germany reporting and that was the story I ended up spending my time to do on the project was looking like the rise of the far right and the interplay between that and then what it meant to be a person of color and what your life was and how that was affecting it in Germany. One of the things you looked at was this concept of the the no-go zone or a fear zone. Could you tell us a little bit about what you found when you looked into that? Yeah, I forget how I found that because I was just looking into different things and I came across this paper from 2009, maybe, or something like that. And it was talking about these no-go zones and I was surprised because I first come across the term no-go zones in 2014 or 15. It was at this moment of trendiness on the Western right, where European and American right-wing commentators were talking about these areas in Sweden and Europe, and even Michigan that were overrun by Muslims who were instituting all their Sharia law. And you couldn't go there because they were extremely unsafe. And they were all very easily debunked. If you've been to Sweden or Stockholm, or you've been to Berlin, America, the dangers of America are sometimes overblown by the American right. But compared to America. These places are just just so safe. It's just incredible. I don't know. It would be very surprising, I think, to Americans who've never been there. But yeah, they obviously didn't exist. But then this paper was talking about no-go zones and how they were actually, that was a term that had predated the right-wing use of it and referred to the exact opposite, which was areas that were sort of de facto controlled by Nazis through the threat of violence against people of color. And it was seen as areas that were created to be unsafe for people of color to enter. And I was really interested in that. And I tried to do more research and talk to people about that. And what I found was that it sort of existed and probably does exist, but it was a sort of complicated thing. When I raised it to different Germans in my intentional reporting and just in conversation, no one ever said, no, this doesn't exist, but they didn't, they, they sort of had a more complicated, they always wanted to say that they didn't exist kind of because they didn't want to give credence Nazis, but neo-Nazis, but they also didn't want to say it is safe to go into these areas. And it was, so I wanted to go and see what it was kind of like in more right-wing areas in the countryside that were seen as, if not no-go zones in and of themselves, adjacent to them. And so I did that and I met people from them and it was, it was not good out there. You also, you take a look at asylum policy in Germany and perhaps the ways that far-right politics are affecting the way that it's implemented. Yeah. So I guess from the no-go zones, I ended up looking at what to be a person who was living in one of these sort of areas, because most of the sort of, I guess, right-wing areas that have a visible right-wing presence, both through, I guess, reporting on areas that neo-Nazis are known to be in, but then also areas where the not neo-Nazi, but far-right party that has neo-Nazis in it, the AFD, has a strong electoral presence. And 
I, I found out that because of Germany's immigration policy, people who are immigrants and asylum seekers are distributed through the country. And so they have to live where, wherever Germany designates. And one of those areas or several of those areas are located in Eastern states where there is large far right support. And so I ended up meeting people and going to see what their living conditions were like. And then also through looking at academic papers and German reporting and then my own direct reporting, there seemed to be this sort of tacit understanding by everyone involved that these people do live in pretty terrible conditions. They're stuck in limbo. And then German states sort of through their own system of federal, I guess, federalism have some ability to make the lives of people there worse. And so they often do by underfunding and under caring for these people, leaving them in weird states of limbo. I think one kind of detail that got cut out of the story was the bathrooms at the camp, which are or the, the sort of refugee housing, which are extremely overcrowded. It's over a dozen people to a bathroom or something like that are almost never clean. They become disease vectors. Other academics have found that they probably are disease vectors. Uh, I looked, everyone I, I spoke to talked about this sort of, I guess, very, the, it produces a lot of, it's a psychologically bad place to be in and produces a mental illness. And I, I saw that in my reporting. And then I also saw that other studies bear that out as well and like suggested the same thing. And it seems to be this weird issue that people are sort of aware of, but go, it goes ignored and it just kind of goes unresolved, except for the, obviously the NGO workers there who try to fight to, to change things and, and try to make it better. Did you have an opportunity to look at the situation of refugees from Syria in particular? Because there was quite a lot of attention paid to the large numbers of Syrians who eventually found themselves in Germany as a result of war? Directly, no, I did not. The people I spoke with, some of how, I guess, the the refugee housing is broken down as certain regions, I guess, can get placed in certain areas. So I spoke to several people from India and Pakistan, Pakistan. but through talking to Dave Schmidtke, the, the NGO worker who I, I who showed me around in the story, he, and then also just through reading breakdowns and things, Syrians that who are forced to live in Eastern states also have to just deal with these kinds of things. Just you said to your point, a lot of this sort of got worse and was a sort of response to the quote unquote refugee crisis in 2015, where refugees came to Germany and other countries in mass. And there was, that was a sort of genesis point for a lot of this hard right reaction in turn. Yeah, it's certainly, I guess, like in the eyes of Germans hasn't helped things. Ali, all very depressing. I was just wondering to, to close on, is there, there anything uh, bright you see on the horizon? Uh, is there anything positive you've noticed lately? Bright or positive thing? Oh, no, it's, it's a trick question. I'm trying to think, yeah. I mean, I, I, there I is like, another question. Sorry. Yeah. yeah, yeah, go for it. I'll, I'll um, think it just, about the Yeah, place. maybe, yes, I'll think about that one. But it did occur to me in, in terms of thinking, well, if not necessarily a positive dimension, but in terms of, I guess, the future and youth, children being our future and so on. And, and going back to the question of Fuentes and, and his mob, it, it seems to be the case that the next, you know, Sleepy Joe is going to be throwing his hat into the ring again for the presidency. I'm wondering the fact that, I guess, the president seems to be of relatively advanced age. There's questions about his abilities as an older person. What effect is this going to have? Is this going to energize, you know, the young groupers to you know, redouble their efforts to, you know, exercise more influence upon the Republicans? And what do you think is the kind of general sentiment, insofar as you can tell, among young people with regards to US politics, whether it's, you know, Biden or Trump or somebody else? I do think that there is a frustration, and I think polling shows this too, both with young people and the population at large, there's a sort of frustration and a tiredness with having this sort of older, 
I guess, a representative and this person being sort of like the, the, the person that people have to vote for if they're on the left and people on the right have cited that too. It's like things they're frustrated with. But I don't know. That was also consideration and concern while he was running, right? Dementia. Joe, I don't know if that came up during the primary, but people made references to him being Sleepy Joe and they made references to his mental and mental acuity. It was a certain, something certainly that came up in his debates with Bernie and people, not necessarily during the debates, but people made jokes about how he was hopped up on Adderall or something during his debates with Bernie because he seemed to show a level of mental acuity and energy that he was not showing otherwise. And so, yeah, this is, this is something... All this is to say is this is something that happened before. And so I think it's maybe not insurmountable and that he dealt with this last time. He dealt with it again. I don't, I don't know. I, I think the Groypers will probably try to latch onto that, but the core of their message and the reason kind of it's been so successful is because it appeals to this materialism. I think that is in Gen Z that is not inherently left or right, but they have a more acute understanding of the stakes that they're facing. And I think that more so than I'm, I'm a millennial, I'm a younger millennial, or a, they have a sense of their future not necessarily being good economically and worrying about the material conditions that their lives will be lived in. And so I think that that is the most pressing thing to them more so than the age of someone like a Biden. And there's obviously a lot more political complexity in what they believe and, you know, what slots someone into a left materialist worldview than the right wing materialist worldview. But I think that they'll use age as a talking point, but they really care about what ends up making their lives like better, I think, or what they can argue, what they think will make their own specific lives look better, which if you're a little white ethno-nationalist means something very different than for most people. In terms of, I guess, trending towards better things, I guess it's good that Nick seems to be fading and is so toxic. But the thing that I'm more pessimistic about is, yeah, maybe this one individual is possibly losing his ability to make a future for himself. But I think that the lane, as I said earlier, is clearly there. And, so, and I don't see a really good answer as to how to resolve that. The other heartening things I see are, I don't know, maybe some of the transphobic rhetoric seems to, people really are very transphobic in the United States across the board, but it seems to maybe not be landing as well as Republicans thought it did. So hopefully, fingers crossed, that's actually a good thing. But yeah, I don't know. I, I really, I'm, I'm always hopeful, but I don't, you know, I don't, I don't have a lot to point to. <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> I'm not a doomer. I'm not black belt, but I don't have a good answer. Is, is the anti-school shootings thing still happening? There seem to be a lot of high school students took to the streets, you know, following, you know, this massacre or that massacre. Those things seem to happen with, well, regularity. But there did seem to be a kind of sentiment that was being expressed by quite a large number of young people that they'd had enough and they wanted action. Is that some kind of source for you know, future mobilization, some, some source of hope. Maybe I actually am curious to know, I, I should have kept an eye on this because I'm curious to know now that I'm, I'm going to look this up later, but I wonder what that actually looked like in red States. I'm from Texas and you know, guns are very, very normal. And they've gotten even more normal since I was in high school, you know, over 10, 15 years ago, the culture has changed significantly, even from when I was there. So I don't, those kids kind of have internalized a lot of the sort of right-wing politics and, you know, they would probably see someone, not all of them, but there's some percentage of that population that would look to someone like Nick Fuentes or look to sort of right-wing politics more generally in, the, in a really favorable voice. Like, I don't really know. I suspect that the fault lines might break down kind of similarly to how they break down in America more broadly. 
So yeah, I don't, I don't have a lot of faith there either <laughs> that, that we'll have a good resolution. But maybe there's some polling that I don't know about that I haven't seen yet. Well, listeners, you can't say I didn't try and cheer us all up again. <laughs> if people want to read more of Ali's work, he is at alibrelland.com as well as on Twitter at alibrelland. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm sorry. I mean, there's people make good art in the world. I, I, that's what I used to distract myself. So, but yeah, thank you. I get it. Really appreciate it. Well, Andy, that is our show. We'll be back next week. See you later. See you then. Congratulations, you have won the right to anything you want. An astronaut and TV host, an open hand, a smiling face. Another medal for your place, an open door, another opportunity to find out what it means to be so lucky. Sit back, forget about the rest. Just remember you're the best that this world has to offer. annual Radiothon fundraiser launches in June. We need your financial support to be independent, community-controlled and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon keeps the station radical and enables us to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. 3CR Radiothon, show your support during June 2023. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. Have you experienced or seen racism against black followers? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up, be heard, call it out. Go to callitout.com.au. A 3CR supporter.